You can turn in your Bible to Luke 23. So as I told you this morning, I'm taking a break from my series in, in the Gospel of Luke in the morning and interpersonal problems in the evening. And I'm going to be preaching for the next, well now, after tonight, five sermons left on the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Now coming Friday, Good Friday, if any of the English-speaking people would like to come, then we'll make Friday service in English. But perhaps it'll be good just before you leave tonight to tell me if you're planning to come on Friday, so we can also tell Niels and Mariki for the songs they choose. And I'll just ready myself and Sean will be ready then to lead the service in English on Friday, if you do come. If no English-speaking people come, we'll continue in Afrikaans. Next Sunday morning, we'll be in Afrikaans. So Luke 23, we're going to be looking at verse 42 and 43 this evening. This morning we looked at verse 34. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our great God in heaven, Your Majesty, the Most High, we bow before You, King of Kings, Lord of the universe, Maker of heaven and earth, Creator of all things visible and invisible. All-powerful God, we pray that You would speak words of life as You spoke right in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You who created all things by the word of Your power and uphold all things by the word of Your power. Speak that same word to us tonight and create life. Create joy, create love, create peace in our hearts. Lord Jesus, even as you spoke during the storm, peace, be still. And you calmed the sea and quieted the wind. So speak your words of peace to our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. So the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, this morning we looked at forgiveness and this evening we're going to look at salvation. Now this passage we're going to be reading tonight tells us about a man who woke up one morning and when he woke up he was on his way to hell. And that evening he was in heaven with Jesus. Who is that man? And how did this happen? That you can be on your way to hell in the morning and be in heaven that night. Well, that's what we're going to see in verse 42 and 43. And he, that is a criminal that was hanging on the cross next to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. So we're going to look at a couple of phrases or words tonight. The first one is loving grace. Liefdevolle genade. John Bunyan wrote a book called 
the Jerusalem sinner saved. I'm busy reading it at the moment. And in the book, John Bunyan's whole point is that God saves great sinners to give hope to the rest. So if God saves the greatest sinner, then the rest know he can save me too. <laughs> and this is what we find here. This man, hanging on a cross, nailed to a cross, hanging next to Jesus, he's a criminal. The Greek word means criminal. It means an evildoer. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, he uses a different Greek word. And it means he's a gang member, a member of a gang. Uh, a man who, who was a, a robber on highways and in, and in forests and in hiding behind bushes. And they would, they would overpower you and beat you up and strip you naked and steal everything from you and maybe even kill you. Uh, that same Greek word that Matthew uses referring to this criminal is used in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, where the robbers came and they beat up the man, stripped him, and robbed him of his stuff, his possessions. So the lesson is very clear, isn't it? What is the lesson? Jesus saves great sinners. He died for great sinners. So here is hope. Here is hope for the sinner who has fallen very far into a life of, of evil and wickedness and sin. Here is hope for someone who says, but I've sold my soul to the devil. I've sold myself to Satan. Here is hope for someone who thinks, but my chances of being saved are past. It's all gone. There's no hope left. Here is hope for parents who have children who've gone wayward, children who've gone astray, children who've who are living a life of rebellion and evil and, and wickedness. Uh, Annalise von Sale, von Kimberley, uh, the people who tune into our prayer meetings and joined our church camp last year. Annalise, last year, I think it was last year, sent me a testimony on WhatsApp about a young man who was a very evil young man. Uh, very sinful lifestyle. He got caught up in a life of drugs then he got caught up in a life of being part of a gang. Then he got caught up in a life of crime. And then it became, from, from light crime and petty crime, it became a, a life of serious crime. It became a life of being part of, you know, uh, what you would maybe call a hitman, where you hire someone to take someone else out. Um, a life of serious robbery and putting other people's lives in danger. And that young man's parents prayed for him. They prayed for him for years and years and years, for decades. And one day, the Lord saved him. A great sinner to show that Jesus is a great Savior. I think this, the lesson of this criminal on the cross even teaches us there is hope for that person working with you, that colleague or that child in your school or that student in your college, or that family member that actually mocks Jesus Christ. They spot met Jesus. They laugh at Jesus. They laugh at how stupid Christianity is and how stupid Christ is. There's hope even because this is exactly what this man did. According to Matthew 27 verse 44, it says that both criminals, the one on the left and the one on the right, your left and this right, both of them railed at Jesus, mocked Jesus, scoffed at Jesus, called Jesus names. 
And actually, my Greek Bible tells me they kept on doing it. They continued and continued and continued scoffing at Jesus. And suddenly, one of them comes to his senses. And he realizes, this is the Savior. And he calls upon the name of the Lord for mercy. As we read in this passage. Another lesson we learn from this criminal or what happened to this criminal is Jesus can save people on number 99. In the final moments of their life where they're lying on a deathbed, gasping for air, gasping for breath, and they lost. And they even people who were aggressively against Christ. Like happened, like happened in this very church, we, had ex- we have examples of that. We prayed in a prayer meeting last year for Yersha's uncle. Was that right? For your uncle who was against Christ. He wanted nothing to do with Christ. And he was on his deathbed and we prayed for his salvation. And God heard the prayer. And God saved him. We prayed for Marina. Umati, Tony Betts. Or was it Marina's daughter? I can't remember. We prayed for Marina. And didn't she, in the final moments of her life, in the final days of her life, acknowledge she needs the Lord? And she was against Christ. She wanted nothing to do with Him. And God came through and she acknowledged her need for Christ, the Savior of sinners. I know of a a man and a woman, I know them well. Her brother, they were Hindus, like we saw this morning on that video. And her brother also, nothing, no, no interest in Christ. Actually against it, aggressively against it. In the final weeks of his life, this man that I know, his name is Nick. Nick went to talk to his brother-in-law. And his brother-in-law said, I'm lost. I need Christ. And God saved him. God saved him. As long as a person is alive in this world, there is hope. There is hope of salvation. So if any of you are praying for such loved ones or such colleagues, do not stop praying. You continue to pray until the very end. But don't abuse this. Don't think. You can wait until your deathbed. You can wait until the final moments of your life before you repent and call on the name of the Lord. Don't put it off. Don't postpone until the end. How many criminals were here hanging next to Jesus? Two. One went to heaven. The other did not. So don't think you can put it off. Verse 39 speaks of the other criminal. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Many people are like that on their deathbed. This man on his deathbed. The one was saved. The other one not. And many people when they lie on their deathbed, they become hardened. They don't become softer. They become hardened against God. I heard a pastor say this to me, a pastor in KZN, spoke of his ministry in the old age home, and he said, I'm surprised at how hardened old people can become. They want nothing to do with God. 
You talk to them about their souls. Oh, they have become hardened. I know him. I knew a man like that. He's dead now. But he suffered of a terminal illness. And even in the final, final weeks of his life, another man spoke to him to talk to him about Christ. He wanted nothing to do with it. John Payton gives an example of this. John Payton was a missionary, lived in the 1800s. And before he was a missionary on an island, he was a minister, a pastor in Scotland, in the Presbyterian Church. And John Payton would visit people and even dying people. And one day he visited a dying atheist, a man lying on his deathbed. And John Payton said, can I pray for you? And the man spat on John Payton. And Payton said to him, why can I not pray for you? Can I not tell you about Christ? What about your eternal soul? What about your eternal destiny? And the man said, pray, pray to the devil for me. And Peyton said, I thought you don't believe in God. If you believe there's a devil, then you must believe there's a God. And the, and the atheist said, there is a God. I hated him in life and I will hate him in death. And that is how the man died. You do not know if you will have a deathbed. You might die instantly. You might die in an accident. You might be shot and there's no deathbed for you. So how will you fix up things with God then? Or maybe you do have a deathbed, but you lose your mind. So you hated God in life. You ignored God in life. You rejected Christ in life. And then you get Alzheimer's. And then you can no longer understand the gospel. Oh yes, I gave a beautiful example this morning of Alzheimer's, of a Christian who has that. That Jesus prayed for that Christian in verse 34. Even when that Christian sins and says and does silly stuff and sinful stuff, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. But what if you're not a Christian? What if you rejected the Lord Jesus Christ? You're lying on your deathbed. and You've lost your mind. You can no longer understand the gospel or respond to it. So don't put off. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the favorable time. Turn to the Lord now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked man forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him turn to the Lord. That he may have mercy. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Oh, God's forgiveness is overflowing. His grace is more than your sin. But don't abuse it. Turn to the Savior while you have the time. Turn to Him now. Why not tonight? Don't wait until you get home. Why not now? Call upon the Lord and say, Save me, Lord. I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. And God will hear that prayer and save you. Another lesson we learn, just continuing, I'm not at the next point yet, but we learn that this from this, this criminal's example, we learn that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What good work did this criminal do to earn salvation? Zero. He could do nothing but close in on Christ. He could do nothing but trust in Christ. He wasn't baptized. He wasn't a member of a church. He'd never taken the Lord's table. <laughs> He didn't know his doctrines and he couldn't explain to you to say, I can explain to you perfectly how all of this 
is, is put together. Everything about God and about Christ and what He is. Oh no, all that He knew is here's a Savior. Here's a Savior. I want to trust Him for salvation. I need Him. Like, like Alistair Begg, some of you saw that clip. Alistair Begg, where he said, where this, this criminal gets to heaven, you can almost see it. And the angel says, what are you doing here? He says, I don't know. <laughs> and he said, oh, did you go to Sunday school? No. Were you baptized? <laughs> no. <laughs> can you explain, explain the doctrine of justification by faith alone? What's that? And you, you remember the clip, if you saw it, he calls his supervisor angel. He says, we've got a problem here. And eventually he says, who said, or what are you doing here? And the criminal says, or why are you here? And the criminal says, because the man on the middle cross said, I could come. What have you and I to brag about? What have we to boast in? Nothing. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only thing we can boast in is Christ and Christ alone. Or as our dear brother Rolf always says, Genade. It's alles net genade. It's grace. It's all of grace. And this man realized it. And this man called on Jesus and he said, Lord Jesus, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How did he know his name? The scoffers. But there's another way. Yeah? The sign above the cross. The sign above the cross said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So this man could see the sign. And he said, Jesus, remember me. That was written in three languages, according to John 19. Aramaic, Greek, Latin. Hebrew is another, maybe another way for saying Aramaic or Aramaic. Not quite. It's a different language, but... Okay, so Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. This man spoke Aramaic. That's the language of Jesus. That's the language the Jews spoke in the first century. So he saw that name in Hebrew, Yeshua. And he knows his mother tongue. And he knows Yeshua means Yahweh saves. This man can save me. This man can save me. And he heard people say, you're the son of God. And he heard the scoffers and the mockers say, save yourself and us. And he heard them say, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the special one. You're the chosen one of God. And suddenly the penny dropped. And he realized all of those things that people are saying, it's true. He is the Messiah, the Christ. He is the chosen one of God. He is the King of Israel. He is the Savior of sinners. He is the Son of God. I, I, I think this criminal hanging there, seeing how Jesus acts toward his enemies, look at his patience. Look at his love. Look at his meekness. 
Look at his gentleness. He does not destroy his enemies. He does not retaliate. He doesn't get back at them. He prays for them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is a criminal, remember. I don't think he's ever known such love. I don't think he's ever seen such love. And it draws him. There's something in this Christ that draws him closer. He says, I want this. I want this Savior. And now he's really sorry for scoffing at Jesus earlier on. He says, I want to change. I want this Savior. What's the lesson? The lesson is that the love of Jesus can break the hardest heart. It can melt the hardest heart. And this is the love like Sean prayed. This is the love that we must share with others. This is the love that we must preach to others. This is the love that we must show to others. To so this is our Jesus. This is our Savior. And the Lord uses this love to draw people to Himself. Like Martin Lloyd-Jones gave the example of a Christian woman who lived in kind of a hostel in Cambridge, Corsos. And in this hostel... Uh, the leader of the Communist Party, another woman, uh, she was also in this hostel, and there was a water crisis, a short, water shortage in 1946 and 47 in Cambridge, and so people would stand in line to get water. And this communist leader saw the Christian. The Christian is never self-assertive. She's not pushy. She doesn't, she doesn't um, assert herself and, and butt into the line, I want to be first. But everyone else did that. And this made such an impression on this communist that she was converted. She came to Christ. Sometime later she heard the gospel, she was saved, and she became a missionary. Number two, penitent prayer. Penitent prayer. Barrow for the chabet. Penitent means that you're really sorry for your sin. Penitent prayer. Now, let me tell you about Barry. So Barry... Barry has, has entered a competition and the prize money is 20 million rand. And so his friend Jack says to him, Hey Barry, if you win the prize money, please remember me. He doesn't mean, Oh, bring my name up in your memory or my face. Yeah, I won the prize money. I'm thinking about Jack right now. And then he goes on. No, when he says remember me, he means... Remember me with favor. Give me some of the money if you win the prize. That's exactly what this man is saying in verse 40 to Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He doesn't mean, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, just recall my face and my name. He means, Jesus, remember me with favor. I want to be where you are. Jesus, remember me like God remembered Noah in the ark to help him out again when the flood was over. Jesus, remember me like, like God remembered Abraham. And God remembered Lot. It said God remembered Abraham and he helped Lot, uh, Abraham's nephew. Jesus, remember me like God remembers his promise, his covenant to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Jesus, please remember me like, like God remembered Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. He remembered Cornelius' prayers. Please remember me like Hebrews 13, 
where Christians remember other believers, fellow believers who are in prison for the faith. They don't just think of them. They pray for them. They visit them. They support them. Now this criminal knew, I'm a great sinner. And Jesus is innocent. He's not a sinner. Verse 41. We are suffering justly. For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, Christ, this man has done nothing wrong. And he knows if Jesus is innocent, he's not dying for his own sins. This man can save me. He's dying for someone else's sins. I'm dying for my sins. Oh, but this man. That is a prerequisite for salvation. That's a voorvereiste. Verreden. You must, like this man, if you want to be saved, you must acknowledge, like this man, I am a sinner. I deserve this punishment. I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. No one was ever converted without knowing that he needed to be converted, says Ian Murray. So conviction of sin is necessary if you want to be saved. And I understand it's not equally intense for everyone. Some, pe some, some, persons, uh, some people's conviction is stronger and deeper than someone else's conviction. But there must be somehow or another a basic conviction. I am lost. I am a sinner. I deserve God's punishment. Otherwise you cannot be saved. You will not want to be saved. Why would you want to come to Jesus if you think you don't need Jesus? But I think we should be careful that you don't stop there. Because some people think conviction of sin equals conversion. Conviction of sin does not mean you're saved. Some people are convicted of sin and they never converted. Like Felix in Acts chapter 24. Where Felix was so alarmed, he was so afraid when Paul spoke of righteousness, judgment and self-control. But Felix was not converted. Or King Herod who killed John the Baptist. He was afraid when John the Baptist spoke. Oh, there's a conviction. But there's no conversion. If someone is really converted, he does not stop in verse 41. Verse 41, we deserve this. We are receiving the due punishment for our crimes. That man realizes he's a sinner. But he didn't stop there. He went to verse 42 where he calls upon Jesus. Jesus, remember me. So see yourself like that. Or maybe I shouldn't tell you that. Maybe I should ask you, do you see yourself like that? Do you see yourself as a great sinner who needs a great Savior? Or do you say, like the man in Luke chapter 18. Oh, Jesus. Oh, oh he didn't pray to, to Jesus. This was a Pharisee. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm a good man. I thank you I'm not like other people. I give money to the church. I give money to your temple. I fast twice a week. I'm not like prostitutes. I'm not, not like the tax collectors. I don't steal money from people. I'm a good man. Or maybe you're like the rich young ruler. I've kept all these commandments from the young boy. I've kept the commandments. I've done what is right. If you respond like that tonight, I cannot help you anymore. I would say to you, farewell. The only thing left, the only bullet left in my gun, or the arrow left 
is that I can say to you, please reread the Ten Commandments and measure yourself against them. Please reread Matthew 5, Jesus' interpretation of the commandments, and measure yourself against it. And then you come back and you tell me again, do you still think you're a good person? And you'll find out very quickly, you're not a good person. You're a sinner. You're hopeless without Christ. And once you've seen the wickedness of your own heart and the evil of the depths of your being, then I want to encourage you to go and read the Gospel of John and ask yourself, who is this man? Who is Jesus? And then once you've discovered who Jesus is, then you call on the name of the Lord. Then you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you acknowledge Him as your King. This is what the criminal did. Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Who has a kingdom? A king. How did this man know Jesus was the king? The sign. Jesus of Nazareth. King of the Jews. And the mockers. If you're the king, save yourself and us. You're the king of Israel. You're the king of the Jews. So he realized when he saw... And, and, and another way he knew this was the king. What was on Jesus' head? A crown of thorns. So this man realized everyone's mocking Jesus as the king. They're scoffing at him. But he is the king. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of the world. He's the king of the universe. His kingdom is greater than Israel. His kingdom is greater than the world. And that is why he asked Jesus in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What does he mean? Well, maybe he means when Jesus ascends to heaven, when he comes to heaven, and he sits on his throne at the right hand of the Father. Maybe this man, because he's a Jew, he would probably know some prophecies. Remember me. Or maybe he's referring to the second coming. Jesus, when you come back, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Maybe he means both. <laughs> now this criminal, for who is he asking this? He's asking it for himself. Because no one else can believe for you. No one else can repent for you. You cannot rely on your parents' faith. You must rely on Christ. You must trust in Christ for yourself. Have you? Have you trusted in Christ for yourself? Finally, number three, joyful or joy-filled destiny. <laughs> Have you ever heard the argument that says we put the comma in the wrong place in verse 43? And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. I heard a pastor say, a preacher, that is wrong. We shouldn't say, truly I say to you, comma, today you will be with me in paradise. It should read because in Greek there were no commas and, you know, Greek, old Greek manuscripts. So we put in the commas and the full stops. 
So it should read, Truly I say to you today, comma, you'll be with me in paradise. And the reason people do that is because there are some people they believe in soul sleep. That means they don't believe Christians go to heaven when you, when you die. If you're a Christian, you don't go to heaven immediately. Your body is in the grave and your soul sleeps in the grave. Until Jesus returns one day, then He will awaken your body and your soul, give you a new body, and you'll be with Him forever. That is a bad interpretation. For seven reasons. A lot of reasons. <laughs> Let me give you the seven reasons. That's a bad interpretation. Can you mention any place in the whole of the four Gospels where Jesus said, Truly I say to you today, there's not one place where Jesus says that. Jesus always says, Truly I say to you. And then he says what he wants to say. That's reason number one. Second reason that other interpretation is a bad one, it is unnecessary. Dis eindelijk, weet ek nie wat die Engels is nie, iemand kan my help as julle wil. Dis oorbodig. Superfluous. Dis oorbodig, it's superfluous to say, Jesus said, truly I say to you today, well what should Jesus have said? It's like he couldn't, it's not like he could say, truly I say to you tomorrow. Or, truly I say to you yesterday. Of course he said it today. He doesn't need to tell us that he said it today. Another reason that's a bad interpretation. In Greek, in Greek, when you, when you want to emphasize a word in Greek, you put it at the beginning of the sentence. So Jesus gives the introduction, truly I say to you. Then he puts the word today in the beginning of the sentence to show you this is going to happen today. You will be in paradise with me this very day. Another reason that this is that's a bad interpretation to say, Oh, Jesus said, Truly I say to you today. What happened when Jesus died? In verse 46. What does your Bible say in verse 46? Anyone got a Bible open? What does it say? When Jesus died, he went to paradise. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he said to this criminal, today you will be with me. Where was Jesus? Another reason the other interpretation is bad. I don't think it would bring any comfort to this man. If Jesus said, truly, I say to you today... One day, in a couple of thousand years maybe, you'll be with me in paradise. That would not comfort the man at all. The comfort was, you'll be with me this very day. Another reason the other interpretation is a bad one. This man asked Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Either meaning when you ascend to heaven, or meaning when you come again. And Jesus answers a comfort to him. To say, you don't have to wait that long. It's going to happen today. And the final reason, the other interpretation is a bad one, is because the rest of the Bible says, when believers die, they go to heaven. Got a string of examples, cross-reference, I'm going to give them to you. The rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. When Lazarus died, he was carried by the angels to heaven or to paradise. 
Now, some people say, yeah, you can't take that verse, that passage. That's a parable. That's a chalakinus. Yes, as if Jesus would tell lies in parables. As he would try to deceive us. I'm going to give you a bad doctrine in a parable. <laughs> John 11. Jesus says, Those who believe, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. So your body is going to die. You're going to continue living. What about Stephen? I can just see this. The other, the bad argument. I can just see this. Here's Stephen. He's being stoned. He just saw Jesus. The heavens open. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now they kill him. They're stoning him. And, and, and Stephen said, Lord Jesus, I don't want to sleep for thousands of years. No. Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's going to be with Christ immediately. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Romans 14 verse 8. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Why is death gain? Because he's going to be with Christ, which is far better. Verse 23 of Philippians 1. Hebrews 12, 23 speaks of heaven, and then it says, and then it says Who is in heaven? Oh, many, many innumerable angels, and so on and so on. And then it says, and the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Believers are there. And I can continue like that. Now some people might say, but what about Psalm 6? What about Psalm 115? What about Isaiah 38? Where you've got people and they say, the dead will not praise you. Well, you just read the verses around. Surround. That's always important. If there's something you don't understand, just read the context. And you see, oh... These people are saying, Lord, do not punish me for my sins. Do not punish me in your anger. Otherwise, I'll go to the place where the dead do not praise you. That very Psalm 115 that says that. The next verse says, but we will praise you forever and ever. <laughs> what about Ecclesiastes 9? Where it says that the dead know nothing and the dead do nothing. Just read the next verse. Under the sun. It means they're not active in this world anymore. <laughs> it's like uh, Job, Job chapter 14, the very last verse, where it says when the person dies, he's not interested in what's going on on earth anymore. Under the sun. Death has no claim upon the believer. The keys of death and hell the keys of death and Hades are in the hand of Jesus Christ. Jesus delivers us from the fear of death. It says Hebrews 2 verse 14 and 15. Jesus is the shepherd who will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. And you will be with him safely. The moment you die, the moment you breathe your last, you will be with him in paradise. Like he said to this man. Now, what is paradise? Some Christians think that's the place where Old Testament believers went. And it's like they had to wait there until Jesus died and rose from the dead. I don't believe that. There are enough verses in the Bible that said Old Testament believers, the moment they died, they went to be with the Lord. They not even died. Maybe like Elijah, they didn't die. And the chariot of fire came and took him to heaven. Or like Enoch, Enoch. In Hebrews 11 verse 5 where it says Enoch didn't die, God took him. Where did God take him? Or 
Or, another example is Moses and Elijah. I referenced Elijah earlier, but Moses and Elijah, they come from heaven, they stand on the mountain, they appear to Jesus. Luke 9 says they appear in glory. Where did they come from? What about the rich man and Lazarus? There you have Abraham. What about Ecclesiastes 12 verse 7? When man dies, his body returns to dust and his spirit returns to God who gave it. Or Matthew 22 verse 32. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. So I don't agree with people who say, no, Old Testament believers, they didn't see Jesus. You know, they weren't with God in heaven. They were in another place waiting. It's not true. Other, other Christians would say, no, no, uh, paradise is like a halfway house where New Testament believers have to wait until the second coming. So as you wait there, but it's not heaven, heaven. It's not the real thing. It's like sort of the real thing, but not really. I don't agree with that either. Paradise is a synonym. It's another word for heaven. And I see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul speaks of a man, and he's refer referring to himself. He says, speaks of a man who was taken away. I don't know, in the body or out of the body, he says. But he was taken, he was snatched away to the third heaven. And then he says, I repeat, he was taken to paradise. Paul says third heaven, paradise, same thing. Third heaven, why third heaven? First heaven is the sky, second heaven is space. Third heaven is the heaven where the angels are and believers who have died. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 verse 7, the tree of life is in the paradise of God. And then you find the end of Revelation chapter 22, the New Jerusalem. And what do you find there? Oh, lo and behold, the tree of life is here too. Oh, it's the same tree. Oh, it must be the same place. <laughs> so, so the Greek word paradise, uh, it's taken from a Persian word, and it means enclosed garden or park. It's a beautiful place, a place of pleasure, and it's the very word used in Genesis 2 verse 8 of the Garden of Eden in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Paradisos, the Garden of Eden. So it's, it's a place of pleasure. It's a place of peace. It's a place of joy. It's a place of comfort, according to Luke 16.25. It's a place that the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, when he speaks of paradise, he says, the things I heard there can't tell you. That's only the things he heard. What about the things he saw? The Apostle John saw them according to Revelation, how he describes it. He says it's the place where the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are, where the glory of God, the brightness of God enlightens everything, where there's an innumerable company of heavenly beings. You can't even count them. Millions and billions of of believers who have gone ahead from every tribe and language of people and nation. It's a place where the tree of life is. It's a place, place of rivers and fruit and abundance. A place of precious stones. A place of gold. A city created and designed by God. And then Revelation 21 tells us, it says this new Jerusalem when Jesus comes will come down with him. This heavenly city will come down to earth and that will become the capital city of the new heavens and the new earth, a perfect world. It's basically Genesis 1 restored.
paradise restored. A perfect world where we will dwell, where we will live, with the exception, it's a, it's a type of the Garden of Eden, with the exception of, There's no more devil to tempt. There's no more tree of the knowledge of good and evil to test. And there's no more possibility of sinning and dying. In the Garden of Eden it was there. The day you eat of that tree, you die. And in the new heavens and the new earth, a place filled with love, life, joy, Peace, a new heavens, a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. Second Peter 3 verse 14. It's something to look forward to. But can I tell you a little secret? And it's not just our secret. You must tell it to others. That's not the best. That's not the best of the new heavens and the new earth. The best is in verse 43. What does it say in your Bible? Today, you'll be in paradise with me. With me. That's the greatest to look forward to. One of the Puritans said, If Christ were not there, heaven would be held to me. It is Jesus, it is the Father, it is the Holy Spirit that makes heaven to be heaven. And when you are there, you will see the King in His beauty. You will delight in His presence. You will be like Moses. If Jesus told this man, you'll be in paradise. That's my problem again with the issue where people say oh, the Old Testament believers were there, but Jesus wasn't there. Nonsense. Moses said, Lord, if you do not go with us to the promised land, I do not want to go. It is your presence that makes it all. I want your presence with us. If Jesus had told this man, you'll be in paradise without saying, with me, then I don't want to be in paradise. With me. And like this criminal on the cross, my grandfather was like him. My grandfather wasn't a criminal. But my grandfather didn't know the Lord and he wasn't interested. And when he was in his deathbed dying of cancer, somewhere in the final months of his life, God saved him. And while he was lying on his deathbed, the last time my dad spoke to him, he said to my dad, I'm going to see Jesus. He might not say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. But I'm going to see him. May I ask you in closing, can you say the same? Are you going to see him? Will you be with him? Lord, I cannot hold back to pour forth from my heart worship and praise to you. The God 
who made this perfect plan to save sinners. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Father, I praise you for choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Lord Jesus, I praise you for dying for our sins on a cruel cross under the punishment and anger and judgment of your Father. And Holy Spirit, I praise you for creating new life in our hearts. Father, I praise you for drawing us to your Son with cords of love. Lord Jesus, I praise you for opening our eyes and revealing to the Father to us. And Holy Spirit, I praise you that you are the seal upon our hearts to say we belong to you, we belong to God, and never will you leave us, nor will you forsake us. We praise you now and forevermore. Amen.